Thank you, Jimmy. See, that's reality, isn't it, friends? We have a God who is interactive, who doesn't just want to change our minds. He wants to change our lives. And what he will do is he will do what he did with Jimmy to every one of us. He will give us choices to make. We make them every day. Are we going to allow our circumstances to form us, or are we going to form our circumstances according to what God calls us to do? So as we go through the book of James, we're going to talk about real-life lessons about the reality of God working in our lives. Okay, let me give you a brief introduction what we're going to be looking through the next three months. An introduction, a brief introduction to the book of James. In James chapter 1, verse 1, the New Living Translation says, gives a verse this way. This letter is from James, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Now, the first thing we know is it was written by a man named James who described himself as a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, specifically, who is James? And the question we're asking, why is it important that we know something about the author of this book that bears his name? See, the bottom line is, is this, friends, credibility is important. If you want to take a weight loss program and the person you're learning from or going having this weight loss program teach, teach taught to you is over 100 pounds, you might want to say, does this work? If you're taking a no smoking class and during the class breaks, this teacher goes out and smokes, you're going to wonder, has it, does it really work? If somebody is telling you how to change the oil, but you know that person has never changed their oil, they don't even have any tools, you're going to question, do they really know how to tell me what to do? See, credibility is important. And when we get to the book of James, it's important that we not only know this gentleman's name is James, but does he have credibility in what he is saying? Is he living out what God has called him to live out? So who is James? First of all, we know that he is a humble man. And we know this not only by how he describes himself, but also how he could have described himself. See, the James who wrote the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same home. He sat around the same table that Jesus sat at. And here's what's interesting. James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, did not accept Christ as the Messiah until after Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, if you look at John chapter 7, verse 5, after Jesus began his public ministry, John 7, 5 says, even his brothers did not believe in him. And it doesn't stop there. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, after Jesus had done something particular, it says, and when his family heard it, heard what he did, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of their mind, out of his mind. They thought he was going crazy. They're thinking, how can this half-brother of mine, how can this brother, this child, this individual that I grew up with be doing these things, claiming that he is the son of God? So what happened? What happened that caused James to understand that Jesus, his half-brother, was indeed the son of God? Well, we find out what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. And Paul in that chapter gives a bit of an introduction, and he talks, gives a testimony of Christ, and he talks about Christ's life, he talks about Christ's death, he talks about Christ's resurrection, and then he says this, he said, after Christ's resurrection, he appeared to James, his half-brother, and then all the other apostles. So this is what I find really amazing that Jesus understood the struggle that his half-brother was going through. And friends, you and I can relate to this. What if your half-brother began to tell people he was Jesus or the Son of God? We would question some of the same things his family did. 
But Jesus knew that James was struggling, and this is what he also knew. He also knew that James had great potential to be used in the family of God. He knew that James could do great and mighty things. And so the Bible says that after his resurrection, Jesus went and appeared. He met with James. He talked with him, and he said, I really am who I am. And it was at that point that it is believed that James had a conversion experience and began to be one of the most steadfast followers of Christ in the whole in all of the New Testament. Now, how do I know this? James becomes, as, as, a, as a new Christian church is being established, James is the leader, the lead pastor of the newly formed church in Jerusalem. And he is a very respected leader. Eusebius records the testimony of another historian who says this about James, who was the pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He said that James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking God to forgive the people. Because of this, he was known as James the Just or James the Pious because he was so sincere in following Christ. See, James, friend, is a real deal, and he is sharing out of his experience concerning what it means to put Jesus first in our life. So who is James writing to? The latter part of verse 1 says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish leaders scattered abroad. Now, why were they scattered? In this time in history, the 10 northern tribes had been attacked by the Assyrians, and that led to many people hearing of the attack. They fled out of their homes. They went into hiding, and many of them were taken captive as captives back to Assyria. During the same time, the two northern tribes went through the same experience with the Babylonians who took them captive in 586 B.C. Now, it wasn't enough that the Assyrians and Babylonians had come on and attacked the Christian people, but this was also the same time in the same era where Saul of Tarsus began to persecute the church, later, of course, becoming Paul. And so you can see that Paul would, Saul would go into homes, he would drag out Christians, he would persecute them, he would throw them in jail. So this was a time where there was great chaos and insecurity within the Christians. And James realizes what's going on, and it touches his pastoral heart. He cares deeply about these people. He wanted them to know they were not forgotten. He wrote to encourage them. He wrote, and this is it, he wrote to give them specific instruction how to handle what they were going on, what was going on in their life. So what are, the first wor- what are the first words that James has for these displaced, struggling, homeless followers of Jesus who have been wondering what in the world is going on and how do they survive? So what are the first things? What, is, what does he tell them? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your praise, faith produces endur- steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he goes on to talk about wisdom. Now, how do you and I take it when someone comes up and you're having a bad day and they, and they just say, hey, you know, don't worry, be happy, that mentality. It doesn't work, does it? Because we still have the emotions that we are dealing with. But here's the point. James is up to something. He want, there is something that he knows the people need to understand, and he, he knows that the, the anxiety that has gripped his, their lives. Max Lucado, in his book, be anxious for nothing, talks about the root, one of the key roots that happens to us every time we go through a difficulty. This is what he says. In the treatment of anxiety, a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God is huge. Anxiety is often the consequence of perceived chaos. If we sense we are victims of unseen, turbulent, 
random forces, we are troubled, we get anxious. Psychologists verified this fact when they studied the impact of combat soldiers in World War II. They determined that after 60 days of continuous combat, combat, the ground troops became emotionally dead. The reaction is understandable. Soldiers endured a constant threat of bomb blitzes, machine guns, and enemy snipers. The anxiety of the ground troops was no surprise. The comparative calm of fighter pilots, however, was a surprise. Their mortality rate was among the highest in combat. 50% of them were killed in action, yet dogfighters loved their work. An astounding 93% of them claimed to be happy in assignments, even though the odds of survival were the same as a toss of a coin. What made the difference? Those pilots had their hand on the throttle. They sat in the cockpit. They felt that their fate was theirs to determine. Infantrymen, by contrast, could just about just as easily be killed standing still or running away. They felt forlorn and helpless. The formula is simple. Perceived control provides calm. A lack of control gives birth to fear. Lucado goes on to say, <clears throat> you don't need a war to prove this principle. Road congestion will do, this, will do just fine. A team of German researchers found tra that a traffic jam increases your chance of a heart attack threefold. Makes sense? You're trying to get across the bridge. You're trying to get out of town on Highway 2. And you think to yourself, I may know how to drive, but the fellow next to me doesn't. And we get stressed. We begin to experience the loss of control. See, oftentimes what trouble is, friends, is a situation that we cannot control and we say, God, how can we handle it? So what is James up to? What does he want them to understand? What does he want us to understand when trouble and trials hit us so that we can regain, maybe not control, but we can regain a sense of peace because of the, what our Heavenly Father, what the Lord Jesus Christ does in our life. This is what he says to them. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of very kind. So he knows something, he's up to something, what does he want us to do? Number one on your sermon outline, five truths that lead us to maturity. We will all have problems. Number one, we will all have problems. Verse two says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Number Verse two says, is talking to us about the fact that there are problems in life. Now, if you ask anybody, are there problems in life, how, what would they say? We would all say, absolutely, life has problems. But here's what happens to us. Friends, when we, we know that life has problems, but oftentimes we think it, life has problems for someone else, right? And so when a problem comes to us, we cannot be ready. For, we're not always ready for it. We, we know that problems are a way of life, but when they come, we, they still seem to be, to, be to us to be unfair or unexpected. So here's the challenge. We have a problem, and we can choose to either react to the problem or we can respond to the problem. Now, what's the difference? Let's say that you go to the doctor with a medical problem, <clears throat> and he says you've got this ailment. What I want to do is I want to give you some medication, and I want you to come back in two days, and we're going to see whether it's working. So if you go back to the doctor in two days, <clears throat> and he says, oh, boy, your body is reacting to the medicine. Is that good or bad? That's bad. In other words, not only has the medicine not helped the problem, it has created another problem that you're now dealing with. But if you go back to the doctor in two days and he says you are the medicine, you are responding to the medicine, it means that the medicine is having its desired effect and relieving the problem that you came to him with in, in, in the first place. So what James is saying, we can choose how to respond to the problem so that as we 
begin to deal with it as we address it, we provide what is necessary for God along with our direction and our support to begin to see the problem as an opportunity of growth. Number two, problems test our faith. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, the four you know, those three words, James is reminding us that our problems have a purpose, and that purpose is that problems test our faith. So every time we go into a problem, how do we respond? We respond by saying, okay, there's something God wants me to learn. There's a lesson here that he has for this problem. Now, sometimes what we have to do is we have to walk into the problem, then back away so we can see it more correctly because problems test our faith. Now, what is our faith? Our faith is what we believe. It is what we believe about God. We believe that God is all-powerful. We believe that God is in control. We believe that there's nothing bigger than God. We believe that all things work together for God, for for God, together for good, for those who love God, that God will sustain and he will work with us and he will grow us and he will change us. See, what problems do is they test what we believe. They test our faith to see if what we believe is really what we believe or do we, or are, is what we believe based on how we're reacting to the situation. If problems test our faith, then what God calls us to do is to stand firm in our problems. We refuse to become victims. We don't try to find an easy way out. And the result is that the problems we encounter when seen through the lens of what we believe, what our faith is, produces steadfastness. Now, the point to make here is that when, our, that our, when, our, when we know that our problems have, impur- have a purpose, we embrace them rather than separate from them. We feel the emotion rather than try to do something that numbs our emotion. We refuse to to drink or to shop or to gossip or to judge or to ignore or to project our problems on someone or something else. And the psalmist does this in Psalm chapter 88. This is what he says. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline my ear to incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. So what do we do? We embrace the problem. We feel the problem. We don't run from the problem and we allow the problem to establish that steadfastness. We stay in the test. We stay in the discomfort. We say, God, complete the purpose of this test in my life. I will not run. You are in control. You are with me. God, through this, this is it. God, through this problem, change me. Do the work in my life that needs to be completed. Do in my life what needs to be done. So we stay in the problem. We stay steadfast. We endure. Now, this leads us to number three. Embracing the test produces produces endurance. So first of all, we realize there are problems. First of all, we know that the problem is a test, a test of our faith. And number three, we allow the test to produce endurance. Now, when we embrace problems, we face them, as I mentioned, rather than run for them, rather than let fear control us, realizing that God uses the problem we have, we have to develop endurance in our life. Now, the English Standard Version says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. The New Living Translation says that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance and steadfastness, these two words carry with it the idea of continuing, of not stopping, of enduring the pain and hardship, of not giving up, not becoming a victim, not not quitting. Here again, the idea is that when we keep going, when we stay steadfast, when we 
Stay present in the situation that God has allowed. God uses that problem to change us, to mature us, to grow us, to change the way we think. Friends, there is never a problem that God cannot use in our lives to grow us if we do not give up. There is never a problem that God, that there's, there's always something in every problem that God can use to make our lives richer and fuller and more complete. Now think about that. We are God's children. And God is sovereign. He knows everything about me and he knows everything about you. He knows the things in your life that are on track. He knows the things on your, in your life that need to be changed. And God and his sovereignty will allow certain things to come into your life. He will allow challenges that get your attention. He will take you out of control and put you in situations where you begin to have to deal, where you have to deal with the very things God knows need to be worked on in your life. And more often than not, I have found in my life that when God wants to change my life, he often has to get me out of control. Because if I'm in control, I will put up a defense mechanism that will keep me from dealing with the issues of my life that God wants to change. So God will bring something into my life that is greater than I am, and he will say, Barry, are you going to trust me in this situation? Are you going to remain faithful? Now, sometimes I've got to go through a little period of feeling sorry for myself or I have to rebel or I have to do something else until I get to the point where I say, God, I trust you. We're okay. You're going to see me through it. And whatever you do, God, don't waste this pain. Change me. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. When we stay in the problem, what does it say? God will do in our life what he wants to do. The fourth principle is faithful endurance leads to maturity. Faithful endurance leads to maturity. Verse 4 says this, and let steadfastness not giving up, staying in the issue. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The last part of verse 4 says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What's he talking about? He's talking about maturing us. He's talking about bringing us to a point where we have a level of spiritual maturity. We need to remember that the trials we go through, the trouble we have, does not produce a maturity in us. A trial in and of itself does not produce maturity. How we handle the trial produces maturity. Whether we stay in the trial produces maturity. Whether we come to God and say, God, I'm open, teach me what you want to teach me through this trial, that is what produces maturity. It is saying, God, I don't like this, but I know you're sovereign. I know there's something you're changing in me. There's something you're transforming in me. So, God, I'm going to stay firm in this. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to handle it perfectly. This doesn't mean we're never going to waffle. This doesn't mean our faith is always going to be stellar, but it means we're choosing to endure. God, I don't like this, I find it uncomfortable, but God, I trust you, and I believe that in spite of myself, I believe in you, I want to follow you, in spite of myself, God, you are going to do something significant in my life. And what he wants to do is mature us. How many of you have ever eaten a piece of fruit, a piece of fruit that's not ripe? You bite into it, it's hard, it's bitter, it can make you sick. But fruit that is, has gone through the seasons of development and is mature, is sweet, and is nourishing. That's what God does with problems. He wants us to change our lives so that our lives become nourishing, so that we begin to pass on what he learned, has t- is teaching us so that we are a, a blessing and encouragement to others. Remember in, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about grieving, and he says, he says, you grieve so that you can pass on what you've learned to someone else. See, every time you go through a hardship, God is preparing you for ministry. He's preparing you to be used as Jimmy was used two weeks ago. 
God never wastes our pain. He always has a purpose in our problems. But again, the issue is, do we settle down? Do we say, God, this is no fun, but I trust you. Isaiah 48.10, the prophet says, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Do we believe God enough to say, in this, in this suffering, God, you're refining me, and I'm going to remain calm, I'm going to remain firm, I'm going to trust you. And friends, that means that sometimes we have to fake it till we make it. We don't always feel like trusting. We don't always feel like, it's gonna, like this is fun. We don't always feel like God's doing something. But what we need to do is say, God, you are sovereign. Sometimes I have to remember, friends, that God is bigger than my reality. God is bigger than your reality. He is doing things in my life that are bigger than I will ever understand. He will do things in your life that are bigger than what you will ever understand. And through that process, he is changing us. And he tests us. It's a test to stay firm in a problem. It's a test to, to, to declare God's faithfulness. But when we do, when we cross the line, God does something in us that refines us and replenishes us and affirms us as his children. Number five, wisdom guides us as we seek God. Now, in the last part of these verses, verses 5 to 8, James talks about the availability of wisdom. And let me make this statement. And then I want to tell you five things how wisdom sustains us. First of all, in every part of a, every part of a trouble, every part of a trial, every part of a struggle, God encourages us to ask him for help. If any of you needs wisdom, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So the first thing, is, the first point about wisdom is ask God for wisdom. If anyone asks, let, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now what does this mean? How many of you have been in a situation where you haven't known what to do? We lack wisdom, right? So we have to say, God, I don't know what to do. Will you give me wisdom? Will you give me insight? Will you give me, God, what I need to move ahead in this process and be the person you want me to do? A friend of mine um, that's in the Every Man a Warrior group that I'm a part of sent out a text last week for all the group members. And it, we were talking in our group last week about asking for wisdom. And he says, I can't count how many times I prayed for help but didn't stick around and wait for the reply. We say, God, help me, and then we go on and do what we need to do. Rather than say, God, I need your wisdom, and then back away from it, and we don't move until we have an understanding of what it is that God is communicating to us, what it is he wants us to do. So the first thing we knew, we need to ask God for wisdom, and we need to wait and listen for that counsel, that wisdom to be given. The second thing, God gives wisdom generously. Verse 5 says God gives wisdom generously to all without reproach. Now, first of all, we three things need to remember about this, this statement. First of all, we're talking of God as a source of wisdom. Friends, an individual can have four or five degrees from university but lack the wisdom that God gives. An individual can seek God without any university degrees and have a deep spiritual wisdom because they understand that spiritual knowledge, spiritual understanding does not come from a degrees. It comes from seeking God. It comes from God's word. So when we need wisdom, we're not looking at a book. We're not looking at the world's way of wisdom. We're saying God is the giver of wisdom, so we seek God. The second thing, he gives wisdom generously to all. He gives wisdom in large amounts. He will give it often, and he will give you what you need plus some. In other words, God said, well, I gave you some wisdom yesterday. I can't give you much today. He doesn't do that. God gives you what you need for the situation. See, this is it. Sometimes we forget that God wants to give to us. 
Sometimes you might have had a parent that didn't want to give to you that were limited love or withheld things. God is not that kind of a parent. If you come to God wanting wisdom, it says that he, God, is going to give it to you generously. And then the third thing, he gives wisdom without reproach. The word reproach means to find fault with. So in other words, God will never say this to you. He will never say, you know, we went through just this same situation last month. Why don't you remember? You sure don't remember much. Are you going to get it this time? God never does that. God wants you to have wisdom so much, even if it was the same thing you went through two days ago, God said, okay, we're going to get closer today, and I'm going to give you the wisdom again. God gives you the wisdom without making you feel bad for asking for it. The fifth point, or the fourth point, is doubt keeps us from hearing God's wisdom. Very quickly, verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Doubt brings confusion into our mind and does not let the wisdom that God wants to give us settle into our hearts. When we are doubting, we're, say, we're, we're, we're not able to receive, saying, I wonder if this is right, I wonder if that is right. So doubt, the basic point here is that doubt keeps us from hearing God's wisdom. And then the next point is this, doubt is a result of a divided heart. Look at verses 7 and 8. For that person, the person who doubts, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all, he, in all his ways. You might want to underline, for he is a double-minded man. Some commentators talk about being a double-souled man. And what this means is, is that that individual is not fully committed to God. They're double-souled. They've got half of their soul in the world, and the half of their soul is seeking God. And this is the point that James is making. He is saying, if you are not fully committed to God, if you are not one-souled, if you are not seeking God, now that doesn't mean we're, we're perfect, but it means, Lord, in my life, I'm going to follow you. God, in my life, I'm going to pursue you. We have one goal, one objective. We're one-souled. I am after you, God, that the person who is seeking God, let me rephrase that, the, the person who is divided, who has a double soul, who is double-minded, is not going to hear the wisdom God gives is because they haven't put them in a place where they can even understand what it is the, the, even hear the wisdom when God gives it because they're not focused on hearing it. In other words, they haven't sought God enough to know that, that when God speaks to them that it is God. Or they don't have the confidence in living out what God says to them because they haven't experienced that growth pattern in the past. And that leads us to the last one. Wisdom is given to the fully committed. Look back at verse 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith. That's the key. James is talking about the man of faith, the man who is seeking God, the woman who is seeking God, the person who is fully committed that they will receive wisdom from God because it's like, it's like this, this aisle here is a lane where we're seeking God and the side aisles going off to the side are seeking everything else. We are here seeking God, and we're in God's lane, and because we're fully committed to living in this lane where, where God is all we want, and we're seeking Him, that when God speaks, He's going to give us wisdom because that, we want to know it. We're saying, God, I want to hear your wisdom. I want to know how to handle this problem. I want to have the strength. I want to do what I need to do. Friends, how many of you think that if God knows that you are serious about finding His wisdom, that He'll give it to you? Do you think that God is big enough? See, sometimes I say, well, maybe I might not be a student enough to pick it up. I might not be smart enough to hear God's wisdom. Friend, it's not about me. If I'm seeking God, God is big enough to help me understand it. God as our creator is able to help us grasp the wisdom we need if he knows it all. See, the issue, it's not an issue of our mind or our ears. It's an issue of our heart. If we're seeking God with our heart, he will help us discern the wisdom or he will do something that makes the wisdom plain. 
See, when you talk about Jimmy, after you were after Jimmy prayed the first time, you had the assurance that you were in, that God had blessed you. The second time, he prayed with the with the bikers. He had another assurance: God was blessing him. How much easier? I'm not going to say it's going to be always easier, but it's going to be easier for Jimmy to do the next time because he's already had experiences of what it's like when we obey God. See, when we are seeking God, we put ourselves in a place where God has more open doors to communicate to us and give us wisdom so that we can do His will. Now, I want to go back to verse 2 of chapter 1 where Paul says, or James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. How can he say that? James can say this because he knows that when we understand that the purpose of our trials is to take the wisdom of God and to have our lives change through the problem, that we will have joy because, God, you've got, we, when, a, when a problem comes, when a difficulty comes, we come and we say, God, you've got something for me. This isn't going to be easy, God, but you're going to change me. God, I consider it all joy because I know in the end you're sovereign and you're going to change my life. See, the joy isn't, boy, I'm happy that I have this illness. Boy, it isn't happy I've got this struggle. The joy is, God, I'm happy I have you and that you, God, are going to change my life through this difficulty. Friends, might we be open to what God wants to do in our life so that we can receive what God has for us with joy because we know that he's sovereign and we know that he's changing our life. Let me share this poem with you. It's called Don't Quit. When things go wrong as they sometimes will and the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is strange with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns, and many a fellow turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow, you may succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to a faint and faltering man. Often the struggler has given up when he might have captured the victor's cup, and he learned too late when the night came down how close he was to the golden crown." Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint and the clouds of doubt, and you never can tell how close you are. It might, be ne- it might be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worse that you must not quit. Our God is a mighty God. And not only is he a mighty God, but in Hebrews chapter 12 too, he has lived this example out. And as we come to communion, I want us to focus on this verse. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despite its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He had a trial he endured for the joy of what? Of sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is our example.